some of you, perhaps some of you uh, even in the room tonight who feel that dual call, you have pastoral giftings. Don't lay aside the pastoral vocation because you think it stands in the way of being a productive theological scholar. There is room for you in the theological enterprise and not only room, but there is a need for you in the theological enterprise. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today, we are sharing, uh, I believe this is the very first conference lecture from the very first CPT conference. Gerald, is that right? I believe that is. You great. opened it up. Wow! So this is this is just the start of it all. Um, and as hey. you as you as you will have gathered, I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Gerald Heestand, who is the co-founder of the CPT, as well as the current board chair, and uh, serves as the senior pastor of Calvary Memorial Church, just outside of Chicago. Uh, so, Gerald, why don't you just talk a little bit about this lecture? that you gave at our first uh, conference back in 2015. Yeah. With the, the conference theme, as I recall, was um, the pastor theologian, ident- like the identity of the pastor theologian. That's yeah. what we were trying to, to, to get at. And so my talk um, was responding in some ways to some of the things that I've been reading about uh, even responses to the CPT about what, questions about what is the nature of this pastor theologian thing. So um, the, the talk is an effort to get at that. Um, I get into the uh, some of the stuff we did in our book with the threefold taxonomy of the pastor theologian. And in particular, the CPT uh, was spending a lot of time focusing on the identity of the ecclesial theologian, the pastor theologian as ecclesial theologian. So I was trying to unpack what is the ecclesial theologian? What's the contribution the ecclesial theologian is making to the theological enterprise uh, and to the good of the church overall? Right. And I feel like um, one of the conversations, I mean, this is this is a while ago. So the CPT has grown quite a bit as an organization. We have many more fellows. I think at the time of the conference, there were only two fellowships, if, if that's right. Yeah, I think and that now, is right. And now there are five, as well as... Uh, is student fellowships and local fellowships and all sorts of other things. So the conversation today on what is ecclesial theology, what is the pastoral theologian, that conversation continues even within our uh, fellowships. And there's, there's perhaps no uh, right answer, single right answer into what makes a pastor theologian or what is ecclesial theology. But you as the co-founder, I think you have um, some, some rights uh, to, to share. I get your, to say what it is. Yes. Well, yeah. well, what I was going to say is this, I think, is one of the fullest articulations of what is an ecclesial theolo- theologian. Or, or who is an ecclesial theologian, what is ecclesial theology, and how is it distinct, and how does it overlap with um, academic theology? Um, so you share, you share a little bit about this in the talk, but I wonder if you might uh, just tease out or preview what you think uh, some of the unique contributions of the pastor theologian, the ecclesial theologian, to theological discourse broadly construed. Yeah, we're we're trying to think of the ecclesial theologian uh, as as spanning the the gap, as it were, between 
the sort of things that one would get in academic theology and and also the sort of things that one would get in what we might think of more traditionally as just pastoral theology and thinking about the 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 social loca- taking the social location of the pastor seriously situated in the ecclesial context and so the the pastor uh, who is the ecclesial theologian isn't just a pastor that's writing theology about the church because many academics are writing theology about yes. the church you know god god bless them for that um and it's not just a pastor who's writing kind of life application because there's a lot of pastors that are writing life application we're we're trying to kind of carve out space which i think is a historical space i mean this it, it's we're trying to recarve it out, but it yeah, used to so be you're not trying to shoe yourself in. You're trying yeah. to hearken back to something that you believe recover is something. Yes, that's right. You know where the the ecclesial theologian, which is kind of our fancy term for pastor theologian, the ecclesial theologian is operating at the uh, intellectual and scholarly levels of an academic, but is as focused on. Uh, uh, kind of application and relevance to the church as would be, you know, your typical pastor. And so we're trying to bring those together in a way that allows uh, for the pastor's social location to have kind of full reign and be in in play with their theological and uh, intellectual abilities so that their scholarship, what they're actually writing, what they're producing is a fusion together of high uh, kind of high caliber theology and high relevance to the ecclesial community. And then that comes out in what we're calling ecclesial theology. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. We, we've talked, of course, about some of this stuff on the podcast before, but it has been a while. So I'm excited to share this talk uh, with our listeners and uh, want to thank you for giving it five years ago and uh, just for joining us uh, now to introduce it. I hope it's, it's helpful and it gets right uh, to the center of what we're about here at the CPT. So thanks for joining us, Gerald. Yeah, thank you. When students who are being trained for pastoral ministry or being trained for theological work, when they look for someone to come and speak to them about theology, they're not trained intuitively. It doesn't intuitively make sense to look to the pastoral community for theological leadership. And so we find ourselves in this place where the pastor theologian has fallen on hard times. And in our book, we lay out, as it were, a number of problems that emerge from this. I won't assume that everyone here has read the book, but uh, in the book, we lay out uh, twin problems that have emerged from the decline of the pastor theologian, and that we, we call the theological anemia of the church and the ecclesial anemia of theology. So as the pastoral office has separated itself over time, I think we could locate this uh, well within the last couple hundred years post-enlightenment, but as the pastor, pastoral office has separated itself from identifying self-consciously in theological categories, I think we've seen a decline within our churches of theological integrity because we have spent the last 200 years sending all of our theologians into another context to do their theological work. And it hasn't been self-evident to many in the pastoral community or to those that are heading towards pastoral ministry that, that, that those with theological giftings should find their vocational home in the church. 
So this has resulted, we would contend, in a theological anemia within the churches. Pastors lead the churches, and in, in so far as goes the pastors, there goes our churches. But not only has it resulted in a theological anemia in the church, but also an ecclesial anemia in theology. The native home of theology is the church. The native audience that theology is meant to serve is the church. The soil out of which theology should grow is the church. And yet we have, by and large, again, spent the last 200 years displacing our theologians from the native soil of the church into other contexts and venues. Now, this isn't to say that there hasn't always been, even as Jeremy's quote has pointed out, there hasn't always been theologians that have operated fruitfully outside the context of parish ministry. But I think we could say that throughout much of the history of the church, that the church has been a viable and, and for much of that time, a preferred home, vocational home for those who are doing theology. And in separating theologians from the church, there has been a tendency, a tendency lamented by both the academy and the church for an ecclesial anemia within theology. And there's a, at times as we uh, read and reflect on certain guilds within the academy, whether it would be biblical studies perhaps, where we can find it very acutely, where biblical studies becomes a little bit more, little more than history, or when history itself is something that we cannot make uh, moral assertions about, but rather just becomes the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Again, these would be caricatures of academic theology, but they're not characters that are characters that are too far off the mark. So the problem that gave rise, as it were, to the whole concept of the Center for Pastor Theologians, the underlying problem that gives rise to the book that Todd and I wrote, was the theological anemia of the church and the ecclesial anemia of theology that attends the demise of the pastor theologian. And so we propose in our book as the solution, or at least part of the solution, to this demise uh, is the return of the pastor theologian. And towards that end, we've conceived of the pastor theologian along three, a threefold taxonomy. I'm excited for this conference because one of the things that we've tried to do uh, thoughtfully is to think about the identity of the pastor theologian. Like what exactly is a pastor theologian? And the CPT and the book that we've written has some uh, some things to say on that, but I'm excited to hear what Kevin's going to have to say on that and what Peter's going to have to say on that and what Jamie's going to have to say on that and then Todd uh, later at the end of the conference. And I think we're going to find that there are a lot of different ways to think about the pastor theologian. And these are not mutually exclusive ways, but these are complementary ways. Uh, and and I, hopefully what I'm praying will emerge out of this time together is that those of you who are in pastoral ministry or perhaps heading into pastoral ministry will be able to to see yourself in one of these ways that the pastor theologian is defined. But the way that we've thought about the pastor theologian is along a threefold taxonomy that I want to share here as a segue into then uh, the bulk of my presentation. We think of the pastor theologian, uh, I think culturally, maybe not in this term, but culturally we think of the pastor theologian as what we would call a local theologian. And here what we have in mind is a pastor and a theologian who gives theological leadership to a local congregation. 
All right, so the audience for this particular kind of pastor theologian is the congregation, one's own local congregation. And the canvas, as it were, or the, uh, the, the place that one does their theological uh, uh, ruminating and scholarship and reflection and thought would be in the context of the sermon delivered to God's people uh, in a weekly basis. So the pastor theologian as a local theologian, I would suggest that this is probably uh, the default setting for the pastor theologian. If you were to meet somebody and, and somebody were to introduce a friend to you and say, this is my pastor, they're a pastor theologian, you would probably think in these terms uh, immediately, most readily, of a, of a pastor who takes theology seriously, who is informed by theology and allows their theology to then shape the ministry that they bring to their congregation. So we laud and applaud the local theologian. Another way of uh, thinking about the pastor theologian would be that of the popular theologian. And here is a pastor theologian who has a ministry that uh, is of a popular nature. And I don't use that in a pejorative term. I use that in a, in a very complimentary way. But someone whose audience, again, is congregants and laity, but extends beyond their own local congregation out into kind of the broader ecclesia. But again, uh, here what the popular theologian is doing is taking... Um, uh, taking theology that's being done perhaps in the professional guilds and is sifting it out, bringing some ecclesial relevance to it and adding uh, uh, some, some perhaps adding some ecclesial relevance to it and then, and then delivering it in a popularized way uh, to people, to the congregation. And so I think this is an important role. We need popularizers of theology. Uh, we need people that can explain well to congregants uh, theological scholarship and the breakthroughs in theological scholarship. So we have local theologians who focus, as it were, on their own local congregations. Then we have popular theologians who are focusing on congregations, again, but more broadly conceived uh, in, in a popularizing way. So the local theologian and the popular theologian are in many ways very similar, except the popular theologian just has a, lar a larger reach, as it were, or a more of extensive reach. But then we arrive at the third uh, uh, identity of the pastor theologian that has been central to the CPT's vision of the pastor theologian since our founding and is the uh, burden of the book uh, that Todd and I wrote, the pastor theologian as ecclesial theologian. And here what we have in mind is a pastor theologian who is engaging in theological scholarship, but the thing that makes the ecclesial theologian unique or distinct from the local and popular theologian is that the ecclesial theologian is engaging in theological scholarship that has as the intended audience other theologians and scholars. And so the ecclesial theologian is not just popularizing theology, although the ecclesial theologian would no doubt do some of that as well. And the ecclesial theologian is not just preaching to the local congregation, but the ecclesial theologian is doing theological scholarship in conversation with other theologians and scholars. And so there would be, no doubt, uh, much of the work of an ecclesial theologian that, that that pastor's congregants would not directly access or utilize. It's not to say that there wouldn't be relevance ultimately pointing towards the congregation, but it would be to say that this is a different level or a different audience of discourse. And the ecclesial theologian is what we've focused our attention on because I think the ecclesial theologian is the brand of pastor theologian that used to exist, that does not exist anymore in any kind of meaningful way, and that the ecclesial theologian in many respects 
uh, uh, charts a course, as it were, to create a whole habitat that is hospitable to pastor theologians in large. The theological anemia of the church and the ecclesial anemia of theology ultimately, I think, is not fundamentally addressed by the local theologian or the popular theologian, as important and as vital as those identities of the pastor theologian are, but rather is primarily addressed through the ecclesial theologian. And so in our book, we spend a lot of time talking about the ecclesial theologian. We make an argument for uh, the necessity of the ecclesial theologian. We uh, do our best to try to tease out uh, the nature of the ecclesial theologian. And I think maybe some of that will come out in the Q&A time, uh, perhaps. I don't want to spend the bulk of my time there, however. What I want to do is I want to extend the argument of our book into a little bit of a new territory. One of the things that's happened since the book uh, has come out is that there have been some questions raised about the viability, I think, of this idea of the ecclesial theologian or the pastor-scholar, as it's sometimes uh, referred to. Two essays have appeared recently online, perhaps you've seen them, calling into question the viability of the pastor-scholar. Andrew Wilson uh, wrote an essay for CT that was entitled, Why Being a Pastor-Scholar is Nearly Impossible. And then Mark Jones wrote a similarly-themed piece for Reformation 21 entitled, Pastor-Scholar, Not Likely. And so... um, What's being critiqued in these uh, pieces is not the local theologian and not really the popular theologian. And though they don't use the term ecclesial theologian, what's being critiqued is the idea that a pastor could meaningfully engage in theological scholarship, written theological scholarship with other theologians and scholars. And uh, in the end, um, both essays, I think, uh, could be read charitably to make room for the sort of thing that we're doing here. But I think they're, they're raising uh, a legitimate concern. And one of the things that we've seen in dialoguing about our vision of the ecclesial theologian is that it sounds an awful lot like the academic theologian, except you just happen to be a pastor. And is that really what it is that we're trying to say? And in fact, that's not really what we're trying to say at all. The CPT's vision of the pastor theologian is not that of a pastor doing academic scholarship. We are often misunderstood at this point. And so what I want to do with the bulk of my time here this evening that's left is to make an attempt at clarifying our vision, not simply for the sake of clarity, but even more so as a means of commending our vision to those gathered here. We're not thinking primarily of the work of the center and the pastors that are part of the fellowships that we have as simply doing the same exact sort of theological scholarship from the pastorate that professors are doing from the academy. So poor use, I would say, of the social location and the richness of the pastoral vocation. It's not to say that that can't be done, but that's not exactly what it is the CPT has been arguing for. So towards this end, I'm going to propose that there are four basic spheres of theological scholarship And I want to suggest that pastors are uniquely positioned in ways that academic theologians are not to operate in two of these four spheres. So my burden here will be to show how academic theologians and pastor theologians are mutually dependent on each other and necessary for servicing all four spheres of the theological scholarly enterprise. Here are the four spheres that I want to work through. The research sphere, systemization, 
meaning description, and implementation. Okay, now as I work through these, I want to clarify two things at the outset. I'm not suggesting here that a scholar works only in one sphere. So I'm not suggesting that there are some scholars who do only research, some who only do systemization, etc. These are different spheres of scholarship, not different kinds of scholars. So scholars will work across all spheres. Well, may not cross all spheres, but will work in multiple, multiple spheres. All right, so that's an important thing to say at the outset. And the other thing to say is that these, all four of these spheres are in the theory sphere. So I'm not saying that you have research, systemization, meaning description, and then the last one, implementation, is when you apply what has been done. No, these, the implementation sphere is scholarship about implementation, right? So all four of these spheres are in the theory side or the scholarship side, not into the praxis side yet. And that's an important thing uh, that may become clear as we move on. So I'm going to talk through these spheres because what I'm going to suggest is some spheres are best suited for the academy. Other spheres are best suited for the church. So the research sphere is locating new data. Uh, can often involve extended field work. Uh, I'm thinking here um, of um, perhaps uh, the sort of uh, scholarship that would require one to go uh, to special libraries or to other countries. Um, but the general idea here with the research sphere is that you're locating the data, just the raw data that's important for them doing the rest of the scholarly enterprise. I'd say this is most often the work of a specialist rather than a generalist. So some examples that would come to mind here might be translation of previously unpublished medieval Latin text housed in the Vatican Library, right? So a scholar gets a, a, a semester or perhaps two to a research grant to go over to the Vatican Library and spend some time uh, translating some medieval Latin texts that had not been translated yet and seeing what is in those texts and just digging up, as it were, the raw data that one could then work with. Or perhaps um, Scott Manich, uh, who's with us as one of the presenters uh, this uh, conference, uh, his new book, Calvin's Company of Pastors, he spent three summers over in Geneva, if I remember right from the introduction, researching the city records uh, and a couple of research sabbaticals over. And so this, this kind of work, uh, re, you know, if you're going to write a book on Calvin's Company of Pastors, you just need to get the data on the table, as it were, in front of you. This kind of uh, research, though, may not always involve field work. might mean locating all the passages, say, uh, in the Nag Hammadi collection that reference cosmology. You're doing some work on Gnosticism. You want to know about Gnostic cosmology, and so you get the Nag Hammadi collection, and you're going to just go through and read and find all the places that talk about cosmology. You don't yet know what's going to emerge. You don't yet have a way of systematizing it quite yet. You're just trying to get all the puzzle pieces, as it were, on the table. Or perhaps you're going to read all of Bart's Church Dogmatics, No Mean Feet, and you're going to look at his view of gender, right? So the first thing that you're going to do is just going to read through the whole thing, and you're going to pull up all the places that he talks about gender so you can begin to talk intelligently about Bart's view of gender. So this is the first step of any scholarly enterprise. It's getting the puzzle pieces, as it were, out of the box and onto the table, and turning them over so you can see you know, which are the blue parts for the clouds and which are the red parts for the flowers, etc. Right? So you're just trying to get the data assembled. Following this is the systemization uh, sphere. And this is identifying patterns or lack thereof with any given data set. So it's showing how the data fits or doesn't fit together as a whole. So here we're, 
we're looking at Bart's church dogmatics to find out what he has to say about gender. And as we begin to pull the pieces together, we, we begin to kind of to, to systematize them in certain ways and bring them together. And this is what he's talking about marriage. He says these sorts of things. When he's talking about the image of God, he says these sort of things. And, and when he's talking about sexuality and, and, and sex, he's talking about these sort of things. And we're trying to just gather the pieces together and bring them into some sort of system that makes sense, some sort of coherent pattern. Or perhaps we realize that, uh, that the, what we're studying doesn't have a coherent pattern. That might be a, one of the results of our, of our research and systemizing as well. It might also mean here that we're not just systematizing one set of data, but we're systematizing one set of data in relation to another set of data. So we want to know what Bart says about gender in conversation with what Thomas Aquinas says about gender. And how do these two things uh, speak to each other? This often requires more of a generalist skill at this point than just the specialist skill to do well. As one moves more and more into the systematizing uh, stage, there needs to be some generalist uh, skill. And in the end, this can't truly be separated from research. And I don't want to draw a stark line here. You can see that they come together. Because even as you're researching, you have some uh, means of, uh, in the background of your mind about how you're systematizing something. And even as you're systematizing something, you're doing uh, more research. But here, we might think of examples, perhaps, of uh, Colin Gunton's uh, triune creator, where he goes through looking at all the different ways that the church has thought about the doctrine of creation. And he, he does, obviously, some research there that uh, brings out the apostolic fathers and the early church fathers and on through. And then he brings it all together in a systemized way. And he's beginning to paint a picture for us about how the, the, the church has thought about the doctrine of creation. Or perhaps another one is uh, Alistair McGrath's Eustatia Adei with his doctrine of justification, looking at how the church has thought about the doctrine of justification from all the way to the beginning up into the present day. And so here we're, we're taking the research and we're putting it together in a system and trying to have it make some sort of sense. So you're putting the pieces of the puzzle together and forming a coherent whole. The next phase of theological scholarship would be meaning ascription. And this assigns meaning and relevancy to the systematized data on behalf of the Christian community. And so the idea here is that we are looking at the picture that has emerged. We've put the puzzle together. We've got the puzzle pieces on the table. We've put it together in a coherent whole. And now we're, we're making some moral judgments about the picture that has emerged. We're, we're making some moral assertions. We're saying things like, Bart was wrong about gender, or Bart was right about gender. We're, we're not just saying this is what Bart thought, or this is what Thomas Aquinas thought. We're, we're now making some moral assertions. And not only are we making some moral assertions, but we're beginning to prescribe some behaviors about how we should live as a Christian community in light of what we have discovered. And so this is going to typically require uh, some deep working uh, generalist knowledge of multiple fields as we begin uh, to make some assertions. We're making assertions not into a vacuum, but we're making assertions into particular Christian communities and the Christian community as a whole. So we need to know the Christian community into that we are making, that we are applying, as it were, uh, what we have uh, discovered and that we're bringing to bear. And it requires a deep working knowledge of the, of the target application audience. We need to be uh, situated there in such a way that we understand the way that, say, Bart's view of gender interfaces with the contemporary context. So here's some examples. I've already used a few, but arguing that pastors must be diligent to eradicate the persistent strains of Gnostic cosmology and anthropology that still cling to the church. 
There might be one way that one would do it. You've done your work on Gnostic cosmology and anthropology. You've seen what has emerged. And now you're going to make some assertions. You're going to make some moral assertions about how this uh, should be worked out in the church. Or perhaps arguing that Athanasius' doctrine of sin is a helpful corrective to the underrealized eschatology of contemporary evangelicalism. So you're, you've looked at Athanasius' doctrine of sin, you've found it compelling, and you think there's something there for the church today, and so you're bringing that to bear on things that you see in the church. So in each instance, a moral judgment in the meaning of scripture fear, a moral judgment is asserted on behalf of the contemporary Christian community with a clear call about how the data or the idea or whatever the the relevant uh, subject matter should modify, confirm, or otherwise transform the Christian community. So research, getting the puzzle pieces on the table, as it were, systematizing them into a coherent picture or a vision, and then making judgments about the vision that has emerged and about how that relates to the Christian community. And then finally, the last sphere of theological scholarship, implementation. This is prescriptions on how an idea or a data set or an idea should be implemented in a particular context. It moves beyond saying that an idea has relevance and meaning. This actually offers practical suggestions about how an idea or a concept should be brought to bear. So this would often uh, involve field work as well and a deep working knowledge of the target application context. One would really need to understand in very meaningful ways the, the, uh, the target application context where this truth was going to be brought to bear and, and how it would, uh, in very concrete terms, be applied. So some examples on this. Uh, a manual on preaching with suggestions about the most effective preaching methods for preachers with different personality types. Right, so research being done, looking at the way in which people are put together uniquely and, and the different personality types. And are there, are there different ways to preach in light of these different personality types? A field manual for counselors about how to minister to someone who has undergone sexual trauma as a young child by an immediate family member. And so here again, we're looking at, we're looking at, at research and then we are, we're putting together instructions, as it were, about how it is that one should use this research in very practical ways in the lives of God's people. So the key here is that tangible, field-tested advice is being given based on research about how to apply a given idea or principle in a particular context. All right, so we've got these four spheres of theological scholarship that I think um, in order to serve God's people well, Any theological project needs to run the whole gamut here. Now, this does not mean that every theologian or scholar themselves needs to run it across the whole gamut, but it does mean that the idea needs to be run across the whole gamut. The post-Enlightenment research university has been historically most effective in the first two spheres. Give me the uh, next slide, Tom. The post-Enlightenment Research University has been historically most effective in the first two spheres. What's more, the university is uniquely positioned and resourced to do the work of the first two spheres. I think this is one of the great gains of the modern research university, is 
there is an ability to do research and systemization in ways that go, going back to kind of the pastor theologians of old, to Augustine, to Gregory or the Great, the, there's a different kind of depth in research that takes place in contemporary research universities that I think is laudable and commendable. And so the university, particularly coming out of the German systems, has been very strong in doing research and I think also in systemization. We should be very grateful for that uh, as those who care about ideas and theology and scholarship. But the post-Enlightenment university has, even on methodological grounds, shied away from the third sphere. And again, maybe this comes out of the German context, but the idea that we should ascribe meaning to what we have discovered in our scholarship is something that is, uh, it still makes uh, the university a little bit nervous. And it's worse in some guilds than in other guilds. I think perhaps in the theology guilds proper, you can get away with that a little bit more. Um, but in some of the guilds like biblical studies and in history, it's very difficult to, to ascribe meaning to what the apostle Paul says. We can say what the apostle Paul says, but we can't say whether it's good or bad. That's outside the bounds, as it were, of the university guild. Some of this is beginning to change. I think post-modernity is kind of shuffling up some of this and breaking some of the, the enlightenment stranglehold. But the ideal of a disinterested scholarship still plagues, I think, much of the university context. Likewise, the university largely, though not entirely, but largely ignores the fourth sphere, particularly with respect to fields of praxis that are seen as exclusively germane to an ecclesial context. Now, again, this is... Uh, I, I can't say that that's universal. I think that there are academic theologians and scholars that are doing work in the implementation sphere. But if you consider the research university taken as a whole, uh, not just the Christian uh, sector of the research university, but the research university taken as a whole prioritizes work in the research sphere and in the systemization sphere, less so in the meaning ascription sphere, sphere and the implementation sphere. Thus, the university emphasis tends to leave underserved half of the scholarly enterprise that is necessary for ministering to the church. And this has led, I believe, to the lamented gap between the academy and the church. Now, rightly, those on the ecclesial side recognize that academic scholarship doesn't generally, generally get the whole job done. But wrongly, this has led those in the church on the ecclesial side to characterize the work of academic theologians as irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant. It's the basis upon which much of the scholarly enterprise is based. It's just insufficient in itself. Necessary, but not sufficient. The solution to the gap, then, has generally been a call for academic scholars to do more work on the ecclesial side of things in these last two spheres, perhaps not stated in those terms. But when you read people who write about the gap between the academy and the church, whether it's coming from the church side or the academy side, it is recognized quite readily by both academic theologians and by those on the ecclesial side that there is uh, an ecclesial bereftness, as it were, in much that goes on in the university. And so there's this call for academic theologians to be more ecclesially attuned and sensitive. 
But we've been issuing this call, I would suggest, since the beginning of the research university and has simply not worked, nor should we expect it to. It is nearly impossible for an academic scholar to work equally well across all four spheres. I shouldn't just limit this to say that it's impossible for an academic scholar. I would say that it is impossible for any scholar to work equally well across all four spheres. The social location of the academy does not lend itself to deep critical work in the last two spheres. This is not to say that academic scholars are incapable of working in the last two spheres. They are, and they do. But in the main, the larger university context often does not reward work in these spheres the same way that it rewards work in the first two spheres. So my solution, our solution, the center solution, is not to ask academic scholars to work outside the strength of their social location, but rather to call pastors, some pastors, not all pastors, but to call some pastors to step into the open space and to do the work not generally being done by academic theologians and scholars. Pastors are uniquely positioned by vocation, by vocation, to operate in these last two spheres. Because of our vocational situatedness in the ecclesial context, we are uniquely positioned to know firsthand as a matter of vocation the sorts of meaning that might be ascribed to a given data set, thus enabling us to to make valuable scholarly contributions in this third sphere. And we are immersed by vocation in the daily field work that can inform scholarship on implementation. If there's going to be effective scholarship on implementation, it's going to have to be done by those who are routinely in the practice of implementing the scholarship that is being done on implementation. This is not to say that pastors cannot make contributions in the first two spheres. We can and we do, just like academics can make contributions in the last two spheres. But we will fill the gap in theological scholarship, I believe, to the degree that at least some pastors become effective in making contributions, meaningful contributions, in the last two spheres. There can be no turning back the clock. And the CPT is not pining away uh, for Jonathan Edwards' uh, you know, New England, where all that there was were pastor theologians. The, the birth of the modern research university and the intellectual climate that has emerged since the Enlightenment is a game changer, and we cannot simply go back. The fields of knowledge have become too specialized and vast for one scholar to work equally well across all four spheres. But there is more to theological scholarship than just research and systemization. And this, I believe, is at least part of the answer to Wilson's and Jones's critiques that I mentioned at the beginning of my lecture here. If we conceive of theological scholarship solely as research and systemization, then Wilson and and Jones are perhaps correct that being a pastor scholar is difficult, even if perhaps not as impossible as their essay uh, has suggested. But when we broaden out our understanding of the scholarly enterprise, we can recognize that not only can pastors make valuable scholarly contributions, but indeed pastors are vocationally the best situated to make these contributions. So this isn't simply an argument saying that pastors can do this, 
that, that in a sense this is possible. But, but I want to make a stronger argument to say that pastors are the best situated vocationally to speak to these last two spheres of scholarship. Pastors are best situated to, to understand the meaning that a body of data has for the church. Pastors are best situated vocationally to do scholarship on implementation about how a given body of data should be worked out in the context of the Christian community. The university context is especially optimized for research and systemization. Let's let our academic brethren focus their attention on what they're good at. Not does not mean to shove them away from the last two spheres. God bless them and may their tribe increase when they want to enter into these last two spheres with us. Any more than is to say that we as pastors should not enter into the research and systemization spheres. But it is to say that we should stop demanding that they do all of the work themselves. We pastors need to stop lamenting the gap and start doing our part. Not every pastor needs to be an ecclesial theologian, and I do want to emphasize that. The CPT's vision of the pastor theologian as ecclesial theologian is, we readily admit, not a vision for every single pastor. Not every pastor is called to do theological scholarship with and for other theological scholars. But some pastors are called to do that. And perhaps you're a student here. We're very glad to see so many students here uh, for these couple days, Uh, quite a few students. And perhaps you're uh, very much like I was considering your vocational call. And you're thinking to yourself, I love theology, I love scholarship, I love reading, I'm kind of a book person. But I love pastoral ministry, I love preaching, I love working with God's people directly. What, what is my call? And you struggle with this, you're trying to make sense of it. And right now we have largely created a context that forces you to pick one or the other. And I think very often what happens is that those of you with exceptional theological giftings think to yourself, it's easier to be an ecclesially sensitive academic than an academically productive pastor. And so you go into the academy. But what I want to say to you is we need to stop sending all of our best and brightest theologians into the academy. Some of them need to continue to go there. But we have some, some of you, perhaps some of you uh, even in the room tonight, who feel that dual call. You have pastoral giftings. Don't lay aside the pastoral vocation because you think it stands in the way of being a productive theological scholar. There is room for you in the theological enterprise, and not only room, but there is a need for you in the theological enterprise. Before God and according to his word, the theological integrity of the church is the burden ultimately of the pastoral community. And our heart as a center is to resource those of you who have both a love and a gifting for theology and a love and a gifting for pastoral ministry. And may this time together, this, uh, this next day and a half be fruitful in helping you sort that out, however the Lord would lead you in all of these things.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.